Have you ever been really thirsty? What's it feel like? You need a drink, Andy says. Your mouth gets kind of dry, right? Maybe your throat gets scratchy. I start to get a headache when I get really thirsty. I had one of those on Wednesday, and I knew, oh, I need hydration. My body's calling out for water. Are any of you suddenly feeling, suddenly feeling thirsty right now? Just hearing the word thirsty makes me feel thirsty. There's nothing like a tall glass of cool, sweet water when you're thirsty and how it replenishes your body. It's not just your, your mouth that gets thirsty, it's all your tissues, right? It's your whole body cries out for water. In John chapter 4, Jesus is thirsty. And he uses the idea of thirst as an inroads illustration for the answer to our spiritual thirst, which is what he calls in verse 10, living water. Living water. Let me show you what I mean. Let's start in verse 1 to set the stage. Go back to verse 1 of John chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, Jesus had been, through his disciples, baptizing new believers in him. So much so that John the Baptist's disciples had become a little jealous. Do you remember this? John had not become jealous. John knew he was just a friend of the bridegroom. Jesus was the bridegroom. John wanted to decrease and he wanted to see Jesus increase above all. And that was happening. And the Pharisees, who had been investigating John, now got to investigating Jesus. He's the new threat on the horizon. And Jesus knew it wasn't yet time to get into a tussle with them right then. So he left the southern part of Israel, which we call Judah or Judea, where he had been born about 30 years before. And he headed back north towards his home, where he'd grown up, in the region called Galilee. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. Stop there for just a second. I want to say something about that. John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That does not mean that there was no other way to get to Galilee. In fact, a lot of Jews headed from the south to the north. They took the bypass. You might want to look on a map in the back of your Bible for this. A lot of Jews crossed the Jordan when they got to the border of Samaria and traveled north on the east of the Jordan so they didn't have to go through the middle area, the in-between region called Samaria. If you aren't aware, there was all kinds of tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. We think of Samaritan and we think good Samaritan, right? But that's like saying good bad guy to them, right? Good evil person or good traitor. They thought of the Samaritans as half-breed traitors. The Samaritans were the result of intermarrying between those who were left in the north after the Assyrian exile in the Old Testament with a bunch of squatter foreigners. And they developed their own worship system and their own version of the Bible, pretty much just the first five books of the Bible, and rejecting the rest. The Jews did not like the Samaritans and vice versa. They despised each other. 
So the Jews often took the bypass. But John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he had to have a conversation. This conversation. Because Jesus was on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. Because Jesus was not a racist. Because Jesus was finding his people. Because God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus had to go through Samaria because God wanted him there. I think we can all learn something from that. God is also directing our steps and putting us in various places to reach people for him. Even people incredibly different from us. Maybe people we don't like very much. Maybe people we have even been trained to hate. Who might that be for you? Don't yell out any names. Who has, sent you, who has the Lord sent you to? Who has he sent to cross your path? Could it be a Muslim? Could it be somebody from the other political party than you? Could it be a drug dealer? Maybe people we've even been trained to hate. Now he had to go through Samaria. Look at verse I lost my place. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Read Joshua 24 or Genesis 48 to get the backstory there. John, through references here puts this story on the map and there was a well there which Jacob had gifted to Joseph and there is still a well there which is over a hundred feet deep today might have been deeper back in that day and Jesus plops down by the well right he is tired do you ever think about Jesus being tired Jesus is fully human like fully he got so tired one time Jesus was so tired he fell asleep. He fell asleep in a boat and slept through a storm at sea. That was not because he was superhuman. It was because he was fully human. And these guys have been traveling. And Jesus is just whipped. And he's thirsty. You see what time it is? John says it was about the sixth hour. That's the sixth hour from sunrise. So it's about noon. Noon in the Middle East what David is about to experience, right? Noon in the Middle East, and he's been traveling. He's hot and tired and thirsty. And he's right next to a well. There's water in it. He can hear the water, right? He can see the water. He can smell the water. You can smell water, especially when you're thirsty, can't you? Anybody thirsty yet? But he can't get the water doesn't have a bucket. Jesus in his humanity is needy. One day when he's hanging on the cross, he will say, I am thirsty. Right now he doesn't say it, but it's obvious. Now one more thing I want to point out. 
is that often in the Bible, people meet other people at wells. This is a thing that happens in their Bible over and over again. A well is a popular meeting place, a place for hospitality, even a place for a man to find himself a bride. For example, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all get their brides at wells. It's like a dating app in the Old Testament. And we were told in John chapter 3 that Jesus is a bridegroom. And if you're reading your Bible carefully, you might guess that the hero might be meeting a potential wife at the next moment in the story. And in a sense, he is. But not like that. But I think it's supposed to be in our heads. The bridegroom is on the lookout for his bride. And as we saw last time, who is his bride? We are, right? All of us together. All believers of his are together his bride. All of his church is together his bride. And so potentially, so is this woman who comes walking up to him. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, you know... Jesus is full of surprises. For one, that he's alone, all alone. His disciples have gone into town to pick up supplies and they've left him behind. Jesus is tired. We'll, we'll leave him by the well. We'll come back in a little bit. Jesus has stayed back all by himself to rest and he, he doesn't run away when he sees this woman approaching. He isn't scared to be in her presence or to have her in his but he also doesn't take advantage of her. I know it's impossible for us to think of Jesus doing that, but it's probably crossed her mind, right? There she is at noonday trying to draw some water. A lot of people have pointed out that this is not the normal time for a woman in that culture to go get water. We don't know why she did that. Perhaps it's because she didn't have any friends. Normally, women went in groups early in the morning or later in the evening when it's cooler outside. They didn't go on their own at the hottest time of the day. Did she not have any friends? We will see next time that her neighbors did listen to her words when she had something to tell them. Maybe they had just run out of water and she had to go get it right then. We don't know. Perhaps she wanted to be alone, but she wasn't alone. Here she comes up to the well, and there's this guy sitting right next to it. And from the way he's dressed and his accent, it's clear that he is a Jew, not a Samaritan like she is. Is he a threat? He is not. And men, let's be like Jesus in this way too. Even when we're tired, even when we're thirsty, even when we're alone, let's be no threat to women. But he's not just non-threatening. He doesn't retreat from her either. He, he, he talks to her like she's a human being worthy of respect. And that's so surprising that it makes her talk to him. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. 
how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And John, that's putting it mildly. Samaritan? (laughs) Some of the Jews taught that Samaritan women were ceremonially unclean perpetually, all the time. That meant that a good Jewish man would not even touch something that a Samaritan woman had touched, or he would have to consider himself unclean and go through a purification. We can't wrap our minds around how culturally strange it was that Jesus would talk to her, much less that he would ask her to give him something that he himself then would touch, like a cup of water from Jacob's well. Now, I want you to see the progression in this woman's perception of who Jesus is as the story unfolds, both this week and next. He starts out, in her eyes, just a tired, thirsty man who may be a potential threat. Then she sees that he's a Jewish man, but not just any Jewish man, a Jewish man who is willing to talk to her and relate to her as a person even to make a request and cross the cultural boundary of touching something she had touched. This is shocking to her. How can you ask me for a drink? What is going on here? This is the strangest day of my life. But then imagine her surprise when he comes back to her with this. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's our sermon title for today. Jesus says that this woman, and you know, we never learn her name, which I think helps every woman to see herself in her shoes, that this woman is really the needy one. Yes, Jesus needs a drink. He's thirsty. But she needs what that drink really stands for. She's thirsty too for living water. Living water. What does Jesus mean? Well, on the face of it, that phrase can just mean running water, right? Spring water, fresh water, water that flows in such a way that it remains sweet, water that has air added to it and hasn't gone stale or dead or full of bacteria. But obviously, Jesus means a lot more than that. He says that if she just knew who he is, she'd be asking him for living water. And he says it would be the gift of God. It'd be free. That makes me think of our memory verse. Does it to you too? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that he gave living water. Now this woman is really intrigued. Perhaps she's been reaching for her purse to make sure she has mace. This guy isn't acting like anyone else. She's so surprised at what he's saying that she has to come back. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? I don't get the logistics here, sir. How is this going to work? Here she's kind of like Nicodemus, isn't she? How can I get back into my mommy's tummy? How can you give me water without a bucket? What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She assumes the answer to that will be no, right? 
The Jews and the Samaritans are all descendants of Jacob, so he's greater than we are, right? And Jesus says, actually, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. Look what he says in verse 13. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about something much greater than well water. He's talking about a thirst that is greater than just physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. And the answer for spiritual thirst is living water. The water that Jesus gives that is unendingly satisfied will never thirst. Keegan hit that when he was there, didn't he? Never thirst. Surprise. Jesus is offering to this woman eternal life. He's offering himself as eternal life. Living water is a perfect way of describing how faith in Jesus leads to unsatisfying Oh no, unendingly satisfying life. How long can a human being live without water? Let's ask Google. Everybody know the answer already? Eight days? Three days? Hey Google, how long can a human live without water? Around three days. Around three days. You called it. And then you need it again in three days. And then you need it again by three days. And then you need it again within three days. And then you need it again within three days. And if any three days go by and you don't get it, you don't get it. But Jesus says that if you have Him then you have inside of yourself what you need to live eternally. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. I've only got two points of application I want to make today, and this is the first one. Drink the living water. Drink the living water which is another way of saying, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Believe that Jesus is who He says He is and put all your faith and trust in Him. That's the whole point of this book, isn't it? It's the whole point of the sermon series. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. Eternal life. Jesus says that this life is not like just like taking a drink of water, but like a drink of water that becomes a, a spring inside of you. Do you remember in the Old Testament, spring up, oh well? Some of us have sung a song about spring up, oh well. That's like that. The welling up there in verse 14 is the same word for the guy who couldn't walk in Acts chapter 3, and then he was healed, and he went walking and leaping and praising God. It's like the water's just a bouncing. You know, you get this idea, this fountain with all the water. It's everywhere. It's life. It's life. It's life. That's what happens inside of you when you become a follower of Jesus. Now, you don't necessarily feel it all the time. 
But that's your ultimate reality. In chapter 7, Jesus is going to proclaim, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Drink the living water. It's free. It's a gift. The gift of God. Have you come to drink the living water so that you have a spiritual artesian well inside of you? That's what Jesus was offering her and what he's offering to you and me and to our neighbors today. Now the woman is intrigued, but she still does not understand. Perhaps like Nicodemus, this misunderstanding is somewhat intentional, feigning ignorance so that she doesn't have to make up her mind right away. There are a lot of similarities between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. They couldn't have been more different culturally, right? Man and woman, Jew and Samaritan, high position, low position in society. And Nick was at night, and this woman was at noon. But they both needed the same thing. They both needed Jesus. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Now he gets personal. He's not going to take the evasion. He's going to go straight to her spiritual thirst. Jesus keeps pursuing her. He's undaunted, and she's ashamed. You can see her look at her feet. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Like I said, Jesus is full of surprises. He knows all about this woman's life. He knows all of her choices. He knows all about what has been done to her. He points out that she is telling the truth, but she leaves out the whole truth. Yes, she has no husband, but that does not mean that she is unattached. She's had five husbands, and it's possible that they have all died, but that's unlikely from the way he's talking about it here. It's much more likely that she's had five divorces, and that right now she's living with a man who is not her husband. Now notice that this is rightfully seen as sinful. Living together as if you are married, if you're not married, is wrong. It's against God's design, against God's command, and against God's holiness. Living in sin is sin. And it amazes me that even many professing Christians do not recognize that these days. So many people who should know better. Living together as if you were married, if you're not married, is sinful. And note also that being married means more than just living together as if you were married. That doesn't make you married. To be truly married, there must also be a covenant between the husband and the wife, and that lifelong covenant should be entered into publicly so that it is recognized by the community. In our culture, that also normally involves the government, marriage licenses, and so forth. But this woman does not have that with the man she is currently with. And Jesus knows it. 
But note also that Jesus knows all that and keeps talking to her. He keeps loving her. Jesus knows that she's a woman, a Samaritan, and is living in sin following a string of broken marriages, but that doesn't cause him to love her any less. If anything, it causes him to move towards her with even more compassion, even more love, truth-telling love, but love. Jesus is full of surprises. Now, I've, all, I've always thought that Jesus knows all this about her and thinks that she's been trying to fill her spiritual thirst with men, perhaps for sexual pleasure, but more likely for security, significance, and satisfaction. She's got to have a man to be happy, and she's ready to ditch them if they don't please her. She's a loose woman, as shameful as a happy prostitute, and Jesus loves her anyway. That's how I read this story. And that might be the way it was. But as I've come to think about it more deeply, about the culture that she was living in at that time, I've come to realize that it's much more likely that this woman was used and abused, like so many sex workers are throughout the world. Women in that day did not have a lot of rights. They didn't just get divorced whenever they felt like it. Some men did, but very few women were able to. Certainly, they couldn't just do it five times. It's much more likely that this poor woman was basically being handed from man to man to man to man. She had been abandoned. She was the one ditched, and then ditched, and then ditched, and then ditched, and then ditched. And this guy that she's living with now doesn't even feel the necessity of going through the motions to get truly married to get what he wants out of her. She's living in sin, yes, and has some responsibility for that, but she's been sinned against again and again and again and again and again. If there's a deep spiritual thirst this woman has, It's not just forgiveness for her guilt, but a removal, a washing away of the shame that others have placed on her. A thirst to be known and loved and valued no matter what. Ladies, can you relate? By the way, if all of what I'm saying brings up for you shame in you that you don't know what to do with, Talk to somebody. Come, come talk to Heather and me or somebody else that you trust to begin a healing process. Or if, if you like me who, who learns through books, you might need to start processing it on your own. I can recommend a great book to read, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection by my mentor, Ed Welch. Can't recommend it highly enough. See, Jesus knew all of that about her And he still moves toward her. Of course he does. He loves her. He doesn't want her to remain in her sin and shame, but he loves her just as she is right then and right there. She's known and loved and valued. He knows all of that and he offers her this living water. Drink the living water. Jesus is what you are really thirsty for.
and he has come for you. He had to come this way, right? It was his mission. He was at this well for this woman on this day, and he's come for you. Yes, you. No matter what you've done or what has been done to you, Jesus has come for you. Jesus had to go through Samaria, and then Jesus had to go to the cross because he was coming for his bride. Not just one Samaritan woman, but for all of us who have put our faith and trust in him and drink his living water. Now, I am certain that this woman did not know what to do with Jesus right now. He's gone from being just some thirsty guy who shouldn't even be talking to her to someone offering what sounds too good to be true to someone who knows all of her story and all of her baggage. What would you say next if you were in this conversation with Jesus? She tries to change the subject. That's verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So let's talk theology, huh? Anything but what you just brought up. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's talking about Mount Gerizim up there in the north in Samaria. Abraham, Jacob, and Moses all worshiped there at one point. That's the fathers she's talking about. They're, they're all in the first five books that both the Jews and the Samaritans have agreed upon. But the Jews knew that the Lord set up his capital and wanted a temple built in Jerusalem. So there's a point of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans on this. A few hundred years before this, the Samaritans had actually built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And then a few hundred years later, the Jews had knocked it down. This woman wants to know which of them is right. She wants to talk about anything but her spiritual thirst. So Jesus stops and leaves her alone. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He lets her change the topic, but he keeps driving towards her heart. He says, you want to talk about worship? Good. That's what I want to talk about. Because worship and spiritual thirst are basically the same thing. You ask, do we have to worship on Gerizim or in Jerusalem? And the answer is, neither. Verse 21, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. No anti-Semitism here. By the way, woman here is the same thing he called his mom back in the wedding in Cana in chapter 2. He's not being rude. This is like ma'am. He says a time is coming when it's not here nor there. It's actually going to be everywhere. You Samaritans are ignorant because you aren't reading the whole Bible. And your whole Bible will tell you the Messiah is coming and he's going to be a Jew. So of the two, the Jews are more right than the Samaritans. But the right answer for where to worship is not just Jerusalem. Do you have to go to Jerusalem to worship? No, it's wherever God's true people gather to worship in spirit and in truth including Lance, Pennsylvania. Verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. There is so much there. Jesus says that a key question to ask about worship is not where, it's how. 
And even more importantly, who? Here's point number two and last. Be a true worshiper. That's the kind that God is seeking. Did you catch that in verse 24? True worshipers are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He's on a hunt for them. He's on the lookout for these kind of worshipers. In fact, the Father's looking right now at our hearts to see if this is what He's got in this room. In spirit and in truth. In spirit because God is spirit. That is, He's not bound by location. He's not contained or confined to one city. He's in all the cities and in all the countryside. And He deserves to be worshipped in all the places, even in this place. And the true church, the bride of Christ, gathers right here together to call on His name. And in spirit, because it's not good enough to just be here in the building, our hearts must be truly engaged. You know, I can't tell if that's happening on a Sunday morning. I can guess, but I can't tell. But the Lord, He looks on the heart. We can't just go through the motions. We can't just worship on the outside. We must worship from our hearts, from the inside, in our spirits, by our spirits. Our worship must be spiritual, and it must be truthful. Was it? Has it been for you today, in spirit and in truth? We have to worship God as He is, not just as we would like Him to be. I think we all want to make God in our own image instead of living out His image in us. But, how, but God is how He is, and we must worship Him how He is, in truth. So our worship must be real, and it must be about reality. We shouldn't worship what is false and what is not God, which could be a whole lot of things, right? All those things we might chase to assuage our spiritual thirst. What are you tempted to drink instead of Jesus? What are you trying to fill your spiritual thirst with? It's probably mud, but you don't think of it as mud. What do you think of as like, oh, this is the stuff? Money? Pleasure, security, fame. Remember what God said in Jeremiah chapter 2, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug for their own, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What are your broken cisterns? What are the things you keep going to and thinking, if I just drink some more of this, I'm going to be satisfied. And it's mud. Only Jesus is the real thirst quencher. Only the true Messiah is worthy of that kind of true worship. And this woman knew that. Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. He will sort all of this out. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. He just comes out and says it. And he invites her to believe in him. And believe that Jesus is the Messiah called Christ. And by believing to have life in his name. A spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Do you know what happens next? Lord willing, we'll study it together next Sunday. It may surprise you. Because Jesus is full of surprises. 
And because of him, we can be full of living water.